electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Warning from a Wall Street legend, Stanley Druckenmiller's dark economic forecast. I will be stunned if we don't have a recession in 23. Don't know the timing, but certainly by the end of 23, I will not be surprised if it's not larger than the so-called average garden variety. There may be hope for up-and-comers. Steve Case on the next wave of American innovation. No wonder people feel left out and left behind. We have to back new companies, startups to create new jobs, sort of the industries of the future. Spoiler, look in unexpected places. It's several dozen cities are on the move, on the rise, and that's what's going to change the innovation landscape. Plus, a personal story from CNBC's Sharon Epperson. One in four adults lives with a disability. I know someone reached out to me on social media said, are you sure about that fact? How Americans with disabilities are planning for their financial futures. And how a community can offer invaluable security. I wish you could see how broadly I'm smiling right now. It's Thursday, September 29th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is on assignment today. This week, Wall Street's biggest investors and financial leaders gathered together, invited by CNBC, at our Delivering Alpha Investor Summit in New York. If you want to hear more about that conference, including some conversations from it, please check out yesterday's podcast in your feed or visit cnbc.com slash delivering alpha for video clips and stories. One legendary investor caught a lot of attention throughout the day, Stanley Druckenmiller. He once managed the Quantum Fund for George Soros, famously betting against the British pound in the early 90s and making $10 billion. Later, he oversaw his own hedge fund, Duquesne. And in about 30 years there, Druckenmiller managed to never have a down year positive returns for decades. But yesterday, he sounded an alarm. A lot of alarms. If you look at what the Fed did, the radical gamble they took to get inflation up 30 basis points from 1.7 to 2, it's to me sort of a risk-reward bet. You bet one to lose, you bet one to lose 40, and they lost. And who really lost? Poor people in the United States ravaged by inflation the middle class, and my guess is the U.S. economy for years to come because of the extent of the asset bubble in time and duration and breadth that went on. Our central case is a hard landing by the end of 23, but I don't know. I've been wrong on a lot of things. I could be wrong on this, but since I do it for a living, that's our forecast, which is a recession in 23. The takeaway for most folks in the audience, we're in for a bleak future. Our own Joe Kernan was his interviewer through the doom and gloom. I started uh, 
Despite, by saying, well, you, you were here at Delivering Alpha, was it last year? No, it wasn't last year because that was a pandemic. Was it the year before? Was it 2014? A long time. So it was eight years that seems like not eight years. We know about how time passes. But when I was just checking to see when he was on, I watched a little of the video, and it, it was at a point where he was saying the idea that the Fed is still at, z at ZERP, zero interest rates in 2014. That was the discussion. We're having the same discussion in 2000. So we've had eight years of ZERP, basically, give or take. But then that's when well, he- more than that, eight right, years well, since then, since he called it then. Since he called it, since it had been 2008. So that was four, but he just pointed out when he was talking about the, the, where he said it was reckless, where they were trying to get Jay Powell's one of 30 basis points to, to 2%. There were NFTs happening. There were SPACs happening. There were meme stock mania was happening. There was Bitcoin at, at 50, 60,000 happening. So all these things that the Fed, in, you know, out of the corner of their eye could have seen asset inflation. Maybe they're at 1.7 still, and maybe they think they'd like to get to two, and hey, we can keep going, we want employment as strong as we can get it, and that's our mandate. But that should have been, that, that they could have noticed that, and the market's at all-time highs and everything else during the pandemic. It, we had a, we had a I exercise bicycle machine or uh, company almost at the same market cap as Boeing. How did that ever in any, it, well, not quite, it was 50 billion, Boeing I think is 80 billion, but it, it's just, it was staggering and-, and um, Everything's easier to look back in hindsight, but there were plenty of people like Stan who were calling this at the time, saying that they needed to raise rates when times were good so that you would then have the powder that you would need at different times and to prevent uh, the inflation and some of the issues we're dealing with right now. Um, I, Stan was pretty sobering. I stood in the back and watched. Horrible. Because um, <laughs> I, I was on Next and I was listening I was to his commentary on it. It's hard to well, people go, walk away. You know, they come to a conference, all right, I'm going to get some great investing ideas. And like, you know, you may make no money for the next 10 years. Yeah, what did he say, the Dow? Is, well, the indexes. But he said, but, but in previous periods like that, there are major moves, uh, upward moves. Uh, a couple of 60% rallies yeah, that happened. And different you know, sectors make a difference, and there's other things you can do, but it was a so, quite sobering. Also in terms of just entitlement, um, if you add things up and, and take it out to, and I, I, we, we said we don't have to worry about 2049. I, I, entitlement I, I, spending, right. And because we'll be dead. Right. We were kidding yeah. with each other. I, I should have said, speak for yourself, Stan. You know, you're, you know, you're an old guy. We are, we are in deep trouble, given all the things we've talked about. Um, by 2027, the interest expense alone on the debt eats all health care spending. By 2047, it eats all discretionary spending. So we're now getting into fiscal dominance. By the way, by 49, it eats also security. We're getting to the point now where the interest expense on the debt is so high that it's going to eat up our ability to basically service the next generation. I'm not even sure about the current one. Okay. Um. I brought some cyanide if you'd like one. No, no, no. I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking maybe we'll be okay. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but yeah, because we, we'll be dead. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, it was funny. It was. It was. A yeah, good line. but I'm gonna be there. In two th I'm telling you. 
I'm going to still You're be, be there I'm collecting gonna be your checks. Here in, in 2049. <laughs> yeah. You can tell our friend. It, it was concerning, though, when he pointed to it. It's, like it's happened in the past. He said from 1929 to the 50s, yeah. you didn't have any return. You had to wait that long in order to be able to come back. And let's hope we're not in for something like that. But when he pointed out that everything was going in stocks' favor over the last many years and got now little, everything has reversed, it's. Got a little, gave a little to Reaganomics, too. If you do compare, you know, where we are and, and the kind of government policies we're pursuing versus what happened in the early 80s. Everything is flipped. Amazon has unveiled a slate of new gadgets yesterday ahead of the holiday shopping season. And among the highlights uh, that we're talking about, the, the Halo Rise Sleep Tracker. It sits at your bedside and tracks your sleep phases and provides you with a sleep score. Mine would be like, we can't. this. We can't do this. It would give up. It, would, it has a smart alarm. A rating below zero. And, and a wake-up light costs $139. No, it'd be like, again? And it, it, we can't measure your, you're never in a deep sleep, uh, which is true. Amazon also updated four Echo devices with improved bass. Bass is a word that could be bass if it was a fish, but in this case, it's, I'm pretty sure it's bass. A new temperature sensor, gesture controls, and a built-in Wi-Fi extender that can improve uh, your network coverage in your home. What Come. are gesture controls? Yeah, clap on, yeah, clap I, off? I think so. The clapper. <laughs> the clapper. And the company introduced the Kindle Scribe, a new reading device that you can uh, write on to take notes, make to-do lists, maybe you know, write on some words that you need to look up so you understand a sentence, and uh, write directly on the pages of the book you're reading. If you read, if you read Nabokov, you need to. And uh, Amazon's New Fire TV feature, uh, a QLED picture is now available in 65 and 75 inch models starting uh, at under $800 at $799. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, AOL founder Steve Case has spent years cheering innovation between America's coastal business cities. And now he's sharing how up and coming entrepreneurs in their hometowns can push our country into the future. I do think we can, at least in a small way, unite a divided country by creating more opportunity for these people and places that have been left behind. The rise of the rest, right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. 
today with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cure please. SoftBank's Vision Fund is planning to cut at least 30% of its staff following sharp losses for the fund. That's according to people familiar with the matter who spoke to Bloomberg. They say the layoffs have already started. Founder Masasun said that he had said earlier this year he was planning to cut costs at SoftBank and at the Vision Fund after a record $23 billion quarterly loss. Most of that came from a plunge in the value of portfolio companies. The Vision Fund unit has about 500 employees. DocuSign is cutting its workforce by about 9% in response to slowing demand and staff turnover. They're the latest of the pandemic stocks like Peloton, whose growth stalled during the peak of the, after the peak of the pandemic. For more on this, we want to bring in Steve Case, AOL's co-founder, who's now the CEO and chairman of investment firm Revolution. He has a new book that's out this week. It's titled Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. And Steve, thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to be with you. It's nice to be actually in the studio. I know. Versus here I, by Zoom. How about that? Real talk people talking to each other time. together. And how did he and start? I, 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 Someone I like behind it. me was giving me a, a shoulder massage. Oh, what's that? No, Razzing him from the ground. Which was giving you a signed book, my friend. You have strong hands, my friend. Oh, there we go. And I didn't have a, did I say no? So you're fine. Back in person is awesome. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Steve, let, let's talk through some of these things because you've been talking about rise of the rest and how we need to get out of just Silicon Valley right. and some of these areas like Silicon Alley here and make sure that the rest of the country is seeing this development. We saw that happen in a big way during the pandemic. It, it allowed people to work from anywhere. What, what, what seeds were planted at that time? No, it's huge. We've been working on this rise of the rest for a decade. I've probably been on this show a couple dozen times over the last decade talking about some of the stories of different companies, different cities. But the pandemic definitely was an accelerant, kind of a tipping point. And you talked about one of them, which is the dispersion of talent. For most of the last couple decades, people in the middle of the country felt if they wanted to be part of the startup sector, the tech sector, the innovation economy, they had to leave where they were to go to places like Silicon Valley. You saw more of a dispersion, almost a boomerang during the, during the pandemic. And you also saw venture capitalists sitting at places like San Francisco and New York suddenly doing Zoom pitch meetings. And they realized if they're doing a Zoom pitch meeting, they could be talking to an entrepreneur anywhere in the country. So we're starting to see the capital start to flow. So I think it's really going to be an amazing decade where the dispersion of ideas, the dispersion of innovation, and the dispersion of job creation is going to really create a new dynamic in America and also create more jobs in places that have been left behind. That's why I wrote the book. I really think this is a moment after a decade of, of kind of building some of the, putting the foundation in place. I think the next decade we'll see things really transform. There, there are CEOs who, especially some of the Wall Street CEOs, who say we want everybody back in, in the office. You have to be here. You have to have FaceTime. You are slowly starting to see even some tech companies call their people back for several days a week. Does that um, do what we have seen to some of these stocks like a Peloton or a Zoom or a DocuSign where, wait a second, okay, we pulled all the growth forward, but now the, the waters are heading out again. Uh, does that disrupt things? Do you have that same sort of a s fits and starts? Or well, there's the mega trends that were accelerated around things like telelearning, telemedicine, you know, uh, video conferencing with Zoom, things like that are here to stay. They're, we're not going to, you know, you know kind of put the genie back in the bottle. But clearly, we're now moving to a more hybrid model where there is more people in the office. Some people still working. Remotely. What's interesting about the rise of the rest is that most of the entrepreneurs we back, now we back 200 companies in 100 different cities, most of them have been more in the office than you've seen in the big coastal cities like New York or, or San Francisco. And the other dynamic which would be interesting to watch is some of the people that moved to different parts of the country but still were working for some of those tech companies, say a Google or Facebook, 
uh, as people are called back to the office, some of them are going to stay, and they're going to join startups in those communities that will fuel this next wave of, of growth for many of those companies in many of those, those I cities. I wish you could do 50 out of 50 states. I do. But I'm thinking of the problems there, Steve, and I'm wondering how you can make a place a better in environment. You can, obviously, you can't bring a coastline or an ocean into a, a landlocked area, and you can't make bring great weather to South Dakota or, or, or something. But what can you, and the pool of talent, uh, universities and the people that are there, how do you make that better? I guess there could be tax incentives to get this going, but you don't want to race to the bottom there either. No, how I, I, I how do you do it to, to places where people don't want to live? Most of the people in Silicon Valley are from someplace else. I right. did a, a conference a couple years ago, I asked for a show of hand, 95% were from someplace else. Some of the best universities in the country are in the middle of country, yep. like Michigan and Ann Arbor or Carnegie Mellon Washington, in Pittsburgh. Historically, Washington. what happened was people graduated then left to go to New York or go to San Francisco. So now the, more the and more of them are staying. So the talent's been there. It's just we've had seen this brain drain of people leaving. Now we're seeing a boomerang of people returning. But the answer to, to what we can do is create more jobs you know, create, you know, in these communities. If we, if we are backing companies that are disruptive, and just destroying jobs in different parts of the country, no wonder people feel left out and left behind. We have to back new companies, startups, to create new jobs, sort of the industries of the future. And that's what this book is all about. Dozens of stories, dozens of cities that I think are, are kind of inspirational to me as I've traveled around and I wanted to share them with other people. I think people reading this book will have to have a more optimistic view of what's possible in America. Talk about some of the cities. I mean, we, we hear about places like Austin all the time, but maybe what are some of the off the beaten path cities? I think we know? profile 30 different cities, but one in Chattanooga, what's happening there around trucking and logistics. Uh, we backed a company called Freight Waves, Richmond, Virginia. We backed a company called a Temper Pack, focused on sustainable packaging. Goldman Sachs just led a $140 million round for that company. A lot of things happening in Indianapolis, the success of exact target acquired by Salesforce. Now there's 2,000 employees there. A lot of things happening in, in Columbus, Ohio. There's a, even that's where Intel is, is launching its, uh, its new semiconductor uh, plant. The president was there just a, a few weeks ago. But the point of this book is it's not just about two or three or four cities. It's several dozen cities are on the move, on the rise, and that's what's going to change the innovation landscape have a choice. If they want to be in New York, they want to be in San Francisco, they want to be in Boston, obviously they should do that, but they don't have to be there in this in this next era. Here, here's what I don't get. I don't understand why more money doesn't follow your example more quickly, because if you are trying to find one of these companies to fund in one of these areas where it's so populated already, prices go up, up, up. If there's less competition, it would seem like a way smarter... Arbitrage, and people are starting to realize that, but historically venture capitalists said we have a network in where we live, like Silicon Valley. Let's invest in those companies, then we can help those companies. We don't have networks in other parts of the country. We don't have a you know, deal flow yeah, in other part parts of the, of the country. And that's what we're, that's we're trying to change. With Riot's Rest, we've now co-invested with 300 regional venture firms over the last decade, and we're starting to network them with, with coastal funds. So some of the big funds, like Kleiner Perkins invested in a company in Atlanta called uh, Stored. The Founders Fund invested in a company in, in uh, 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 called Hermius. Uh, it's also focused on, on uh, kind of Mach 5 uh, you know, jet engines. So we're starting to see some of that coastal money flow to these different, Steve, different cities. The, the, tell me we've got to go. But these are all, these are great, you know, my dream private sector solutions to all these things that are going to bring the American dream to people, which is the way we need to do it. Is the government, can it help or, or can it at least not 
hurt? What, what kind of policies help? I think, I think you're right. Ultimately, it's about the entrepreneurs, the investors, or the marketplace what working. But do? there is a role of government. And what can they do to help? Uh, one thing that happened this, this, uh, just a couple months ago as part of the Chips and Science Act uh, was a $10 billion funding, uh, or at least authorization, of funding of regional hubs. Some of those cities, like Silicon Valley, like, uh, like Austin, some of the momentum was so you're started okay with, with that, even government. though it picked a specific industry. That's not no. It, it's it, it's not necessarily picking specific industries. It's trying to figure out ways to disperse some of the innovation. No, but overall, the chips by act. backing more of the R and D in a variety of universities right. across a variety of different different industries. I think things like that can uh, can can so be the, helpful. So the chips act was a net positive. And I think that was a net positive. Overall, it really. still needs to the ten billion was authorized, not appropriated. So there's still work to be done. There's still work to be done on immigration reform, so we can continue to win. Well, with they the, don't you could, you could do that personally, I think. What's that? Uh, if they don't come up with that $10 billion, you could just write a check, I think, which is cool to be you, I think. If enough people buy this <laughs> book, then perhaps I can do it. For now, I'm going to champion these entrepreneurs, champion these cities, because I really do, in all seriousness, I do think we can, at least in a small way, unite a divided country by creating more opportunity for these people and places that have been left behind. We have to shine a spotlight on that. That's why I wrote the book, and I always am grateful for the opportunity to be here and talk about some of these amazing entrepreneurs and some of these rising cities that don't get enough attention. You still use a dial-up. When you, when you I do. That's that you know? screeching modem tone. You, just, you think it's annoying. I say cha-ching, cha-ching. You're not changing, are you? You're still doing it. Of course, of course. Awesome. I think the broadband thing is way overrated. Awesome. I'm still there with dialogue all the way. I, I was listening to a podcast on my Walkman about how you... Uh, <laughs> I won't change. I'm sorry. And he's not either. See? No, he's not. But Steve, this is you a great mail. mission. We've followed you along the way. Uh, really great to see how it's taking off. And thank you for the update. Thanks so much. The book, again, is called The Rise of the Rest. It's with Steve Case. you got to look it up. Next, on Squawk Pod, a personal and personal finance story. I was able to return to work after a year, but I was on disability, on short-term disability for 12 months. CNBC's Sharon Epperson reports how millions of Americans with disabilities plan for their financial future. After Daniel was injured, uh, our whole family dynamic was different. And I was in the hospital and rehab for a total of 341 days. But who's counting, am I right? And how that community supports each other in surprising ways. Everyone was smiling. Everyone was smiling. That story, right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Squawk Pod. I'm producer Katie Kramer. 61 million Americans, that is one quarter of adults in this country, live with a disability. For their families, planning for the financial future of the disabled is a key concern. I spoke with CNBC senior personal finance correspondent Sharon Epperson. Sharon, thank you so much for being here. 
about the people behind the numbers. One in four adults lives with a disability. I know mm. someone reached out to me on social media and said, are you sure about that fact? And I said, yes, I am. It comes from the CDC. And there are many people living with invisible disabilities. You may not realize the chronic illness that they have, the mental health issues they may be struggling with, or other types of disabilities. And then there are those with physical disabilities as well. And the result is often that they're not able to work or not able to work the way they did perhaps before they had the disability. Um, and in other cases, they are able to work, but they need to have certain accommodations and certain things done so that they're able to work effectively. And so that number, one in four adults, is is concerning enough. But But the flip side of it is that planning for the financial future of someone who is disabled is a very um, unique challenge. And you learned this firsthand. Well, it's a unique challenge that I learned firsthand because in 2016, in September of 2016, I suffered a ruptured brain aneurysm. And that is when a vessel in your brain literally explodes. In many cases, half of the time, that is a fatal occurrence. And in my case, thankfully, I was able to have the medical attention quickly and it, it was able to be repaired in a quick fashion as well. The issue is that most people who survive have major neurological deficits. Many are not able to return to work. I was able to return to work after a year, but I was on disability, on short-term disability for 12 months. It is a very humbling experience. It can be an empowering experience when it's done right, but it can also be a very um, discouraging experience when many who are working with you don't understand. Right, right. You met a fellow survivor, a young man named Daniel Trush. <clears throat> We're good. You ready? Yeah. Tell me about Daniel and his parents and what they've learned from their experience from his survival of a brain aneurysm. I wish you could see how broadly I'm smiling right now. I love <laughs> Daniel Trush. We're just Daniel and Ken and Sharon yeah, talking. Yep. We're just having a conversation. We're just having a conversation. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I really met one of the brightest lights I've ever met in my life a few weeks ago when I met Daniel. Daniel Trush, co-founder and president of Daniel's Music Foundation. When I was on, when I was 12 years old, one of my five undetected brain aneurysms burst inside my head. I went into a coma and I was in a coma for 30 days and I was in the hospital and rehab for a total of 341 days. But who's counting, am I right? <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> oh my gosh. You had no idea that you had these aneurysms? Nope, I had just been having really bad headaches for a few weeks before, and my parents brought me to my pediatrician, and he, th and he said that they were just migraines, because what are the chances that a 12-year-old kid's gonna have a brain aneurysm? Daniel spent years recovering and undergoing intensive therapy, learning to use a wheelchair, slowly learning to push it himself and walk behind, slowly regaining functionality. But something that was missing was a passion, and it turned out that gap could be filled with a universal language. Here's Ken Trush. Music activates more parts of the brain than almost any activity, and um, it's helped Daniel, and that's how we got started, by Daniel started seeing a, musical ther a music therapist and we saw how he was responding to it. Music has done so much for me in my life. You ready? Yeah, hit it. Awesome, dude. This one's called Here I Am. Yeah, okay. 
Chinese Music Foundation is extraordinary because it reaches so many people with various disabilities throughout the New York City area um, and gives them a sense of purpose and also a sense of community, knowing that they're not alone. Hello, hello, everybody. And shall I say a big howdy. It is great to see you for this line dance party weekend. It sure feels good to dance with you guys this evening. Let's point. The most important thing, friends, is that you are getting down and having a good time. Hey, Daniel. I'm loving that wiggle, friend. What does music do for you? What is, why do you love it? Music just makes me so happy and, and it's my passion and, and it's my life. When you see people on screen, when you're doing the dance party, do you see them smile? Do you see the people who are coming here? Can you see a transition? Yes, I can see a transition. The smiles are very large and very bright. What metric do you use? Oh yeah, we actually use a smile-o-meter to judge whether we're successful or not. Wow, Danny, uh, yeah. you nailed that, bud. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, dude. Yeah. We wrote some good words. Yeah, we definitely did. I felt like I was home. You know, mm. people may see, and again, they don't always know what your disability is. They can't necessarily see it. But, you know, I, I'm like, I'm with my people. <laughs> Having a dance party with Daniel's Music Foundation, until you've done it, you just don't know how much fun you can have. So you said Daniel was 12 when he experienced his brain aneurysm mm -hmm. and his parents are in their 60s now? They're in their 60s now. Now he's 38. Yes. And I, I got to think that's got to be such a hard position to be in to not only plan for your own retirement and financial future, but to think about your child who needs um, who needs care, who needs stability after you're gone. Yeah, well, Dan's dad, Ken Trush, is just an amazing father. But his focus um, was always to have a plan for Daniel, not just a business plan for how they would pay for it financially, but a life plan. And the goal in the life plan, he said, was to make sure that Daniel was happy. Well, first, it was a matter of survival. And so we wanted to work through that. But early on in the process, Nancy and I agreed that we would work as a team because sometimes... One of us would be up, one would be down. But we never went away from trying to bring meaning into our children's lives. And that goes for Daniel and it goes for Michael, our youngest son. We always had that as one of the main objectives, probably the only objective, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so after Daniel was injured, uh, our whole family dynamic was different, but we still had the core values. One of the things that people probably don't think about, first of all, they never think it's going to happen to them, but they certainly don't think about how they're going to pay for it and afford the care for their child when something like this happens. You've been dealing with this for... 25 years. 25 years. How have you dealt with that financially? I'm used to business plans, and so I converted a business plan to a personal plan. You know, almost like pipelines and revenue projections. We did a lot of research on what was available with government programs and public assistance and um, how it tied into our own objectives. But the main focus is how do we get through this in, in a joyful way and the best way for our children and for our, our marriage. I think a lot of people struggle with how am I going to make sure that everything is going to be okay for my child if now I've seen the unexpected what if it happens to me? What if something happens to me? How do I make sure that my child is cared for? I think Daniel 
made us all realize that something could happen, like you said, at any time to all of us. And it brought us to living in the moment rather than worrying and enjoying and actually made our life fuller because we weren't worried about, okay, what's going to happen in 20 years or 30 years. We looked at how are we going to enjoy today? That's what we have. What about just traditional financial planning? Are there resources for families that find themselves in this situation and might have to move very quickly and find additional advocacy? You want to find someone who has worked with special needs. There is the Academy of Special Needs Planners that involves financial advisors and attorneys that are experts in this area, as well as the Special Needs Alliance. So if you want to go somewhere where the person you know definitely has the um, experience in dealing with a family like yours, that would be a good place to start. But I also must say, as someone who continues to go to survivor support groups myself, that community is so important. The things that I've learned just from other survivors and their family members about things that I can do, whether it's how to come back to work and how to adjust to the to the rhythms of the day or um, different types of, though I haven't needed them, different types of state funding that might be available. It's all come through that group. So I think that finding a community of support is also very important. One of the reasons why it seems like music is so important in your life is the connections that you have with other people. How has music enabled you to connect with people in a different way? I guess it's helped me connect with people just by singing for them and seeing the smiles and the joy that it brings them. When they see me, they might not think that I could do much, but then when, when I show them what I could do, their minds are blown. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right, Daniel. That's exactly Thank you for listening to Squawk Pod today. And thanks to Sharon Epperson and producer Stephanie Dew for their work on today's story. Thank you also to Daniel and Ken Trush for making us all smile. September is Brain Aneurysm Awareness Month. Resources and information for families are available at bafound.org. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.